The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Support for this show comes from the Utopia Foundation, committed to providing opportunities for people to express their good intentions in local and international communities. Learn how you can create positive change in the world at utopiafound.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations, a weekly podcast from Spirituality and Health Magazine. I want to thank the Utopia Foundation for making this week's interview possible. Our guest today, Tuktin Jinpa, holds a PhD from Cambridge in world religion, has, since 1985, been the primary English language translator for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's translated and edited over 10 of the Dalai Lama's books and has written several of his own, most recently, A Fearless Heart, How the Courage to be Compassionate Can Transform Our Lives. Once a Tibetan Buddhist monk, Thupten Jinpa is now a lay Buddhist, a professor of religion, and a married father of two daughters. Jinpa, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. It's really an honor to have you on. I met His Holiness a couple of years ago. We were both teaching in Delhi at the Ramakrishna Mat. It was the 150th birthday anniversary of Swami Vivekananda. And the whole country of India was starting off this multi-year celebration of Swami's life. And the Dalai Lama gave the keynote address. Let's start the conversation, uh, though I want to spend the bulk of our time together exploring your thoughts on compassion. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't give our listeners a chance to hear some of your spiritual journey. So there's three questions I want to put to you, and I'm going to give them to you all at once, and then we'll go back and take them up one at a time. The first one is, what drew you to become a monk? The second one is, what pulled you away from that life into the world of marriage, fatherhood, scholarship, and academia? And then the last one is, how your research into world religions has impacted your understanding and practice of Buddhism. So we're going to pitch those to you one at a time and see where you take them. So give us some background. How did you become a monk? Well, actually, uh, when I became a monk, I was very young. I was actually about 11. And I don't think there was any major spiritual kind of revelation that led me to joining the monkhood. I think it was more of a very, very human motivation. I was like many Tibetan children of my age. Um, I was in a boarding school uh, for Tibetan refugees in Shimla. And at that school, among all the teachers, there were two monks, uh, teachers, who always looked much more happy and, in fact, physically radiant and glowing. And they also had the most fascinating stories to tell. 
whatever they said, they all sound, sounded, they always sounded very, very wise and intelligent. So I suppose I associated those kind of qualities of, of human being with the people in robes. So when the first opportunity came, I just wanted to be like one of them. <laughs> so it was oh, as I simple can, as that. <laughs> I can understand that. Whenever I hear someone speak with a Tibetan accent, I always think they're very wise. Uh, but in your case, everyone was speaking with a Tibetan accent. <laughs> so it's the robes that got you. Okay. Exactly. exactly. I, I get that. I mean, that's, it's normal to go in to the monastery that young. Yes, it is. Actually, in the Tibetan tradition, um, I suppose it's the same in, in the West until quite recently, in the, especially in the Catholic countries, for families to have an aspiration to have at least one of the boys in a monastery. And that was the case with uh, the Tibetan society as well. But generally, it's the parents that would put the children into the monastery, whereas in my case, it was me who insisted that I wanted to be one. So your parents are proud of that choice? No, actually, uh, my father particularly wasn't very happy because I was doing quite well at school as parents, you know, refugee, you know, parents. He felt that, you know, I was squandering my opportunity for becoming a kind of a bread earner for the family because I have two younger siblings. So he was actually quite against it. <laughs> uh, we have that in common. My father was not happy when I chose to become a rabbi for the same reason. But you were attracted to the philosophy then. It wasn't an economic thing. It wasn't that your parents put you there. No, because... no. It was more the kind of ideal of uh, a monastic life and, and the serenity that the monks projected. That's what drew me to joining the monastery. Yeah. So what pulled you out? Well, I was, you know, in 1970, I became a monk and uh, remained, you know, a part of the monastery for a long time. And as I grew older and my studies at the monastery completed, there was kind of, you know, from my late teenage and early 20s, a sort of a, a yearning for a family life became quite strong. And I suppose that's partly because I lost my mother when I was quite young and I was in a boarding school from a very, very young age, from the age of four and a half. I supposed I missed not having a family and that yearning sort of stayed and I thought it might just go away, but it never really went away. So when I was in my early 30s, then I really had to make a serious decision whether you know I need to you know leave the monastery and start a family life or not. So that was mainly that main motivation that sort of slowly you know, kind of took me away from continuing to be a member of a monastic order. Was it a difficult thing to do, to leave? It, it was. It was. Once I had made the decision, it was very difficult because, uh, you know, so many of my colleagues still are monastic members. And um, because of having a fairly visible status within the monastic community, um, a lot of people, it's understandable, had invested their identity in in my success as a monastic member. And so leaving the monastery and, and becoming a lay person, I knew that it was going to cause a lot of pain to a lot of people and to the community members as well. So it was very difficult to somehow find the right way to break the news and to really convey to my colleagues that this was purely a personal decision and not reflect anything on my part in the form of disillusionment or anything like that. I can imagine it. I mean, you, in a sense, disappointed your dad when you went in and you're disappointing your colleagues and friends when you came out. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it takes a strong personality to do that. Was your father alive when you left? Yes, he was, you know, amazingly, he took the news very well. Actually, I was quite surprised. Yeah. <laughs> The news of your of your leaving the monastery. Leaving the monastery, yeah, he took it. He, he took it well. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Oh, finally, go get a job. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so you went. You went on to academia, and you got married. You have two daughters. How old are they? Uh, my younger one is just turned sixteen, and the elder one is just turned eighteen. Two girls. Yeah. 
Is it difficult for them to be raised by an ex-monk? No, actually, uh, surprisingly, uh, parenthood has been, you know, a rather easy, smooth sailing for me. And I, I don't know whether it is the gene or, you know, maybe a large part of the credit goes to my wife. But uh, we have been very lucky. I mean, I, I suppose to a large extent, it's kind of luck. Um the good the girls are really wonderful. They're very understanding. They're considerate. Of course, you know, when they're in their teenage years, you know, they, you have their, they have their teenage moments when they're often speaking in grunts rather than words. But that's very <laughs> normal. But other than that, they have been really, you know, they never use any abusive language towards us as parents and never shout back. It's been really, uh, and I suppose to a large extent, because we treated them with respect, and then they sort of established a kind of an expectation and a norm in the at mm-hmm. home. So it's been, you know, reasonably smooth sailing. Yeah. So it never occurred to you to put them in a convent. No. <laughs> you know, although I do, you know, having been in a boarding school and then in a monastic life, I do feel that you know, once in a while. Having that, acquiring that skill to be alone with oneself, I think it's going to be an important one. I mean, I do, how do we get that? I don't know. Um, you know, boot camp, it's probably not the way to go about it. But, um, but it does, I, I think, because sometimes people um, in, in modern life, <clears throat> you know, come to define their identity um, so much in this kind of social way and in terms of comparison with others they very rarely get the opportunity to tap deeply, you know, inside themselves to dig up from the depth of their character and, you know, be at ease with themselves. And I think that's probably something that you can only do if you have, if you allow yourself a space, whether it may take a kind of a silent retreat of some type. But I I wish, but I I hope that I I still haven't given up my hope. I'm going to be able to hope that my encourage my two girls to find that quiet time you know at some point in their life yeah it's it's very difficult i mean i, I i've not been to um i've not been to tibet and i've not been to dharamsala but you know in in american culture united states western culture turning inward finding quiet being by yourself these are not necessarily values that are intrinsic to the consumer capitalist lifestyle uh, is it is it different? Did you grow up in, in in a different way? Where where this? I mean, besides being a monk at the age of eleven, is it generally uh, valued in Tibetan society that uh, you know to have time alone, to have be comfortable with yourself? Um, well, I think outside the monastic culture, the, the society is very very social. Um, I mean, in the, in the <clears throat> You know, uh, Western visitors uh, spending some time in the Tibetan community often complain that people have no concept of privacy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it's like family relations and social relations. You know, in the West, you know, you have to ring someone, make sure that you have, you tell someone before you knock on the door. Whereas in the Tibetan community, you know, people just knock on the door and walk in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> without making any sort of the social interactions are much more organic and fluid. Um, Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. 
Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So I suppose outside the monastic community, silence and being alone is isn't particularly part of the culture. Although uh, people do spend a lot of time doing reciting Omani Padme or sacred mantra or mm-hmm. chanting. That I suppose one could say that that's a kind of time spent with oneself. I think we have a very romanticized view of Tibetans uh, in the West. You know, they're always walking around with prayer wheels and uh, you know, reciting Om Mani Padme Om. I, I mean, it's, it's almost a caricature, I think, of, it's true, uh, true. of, of how, how we look at people. So this is the last question before we move on to your book. You, you went into academia. You studied world religions. You teach world religions. You come from a, a culture that is quite powerful. You're really steeped in that. Uh, how did your view, if if they did, if it did at all, how did your view of Buddhism change as you studied and now teach the other religions of the world? Um, actually, I don't teach other religions. I've studied them. Um, <clears throat> my main teaching at McGill is really kind of very specialized in the Buddhist studies and Tibetan studies. But uh, having had the privilege to serve His Holiness for such a long time, and and one major uh, part of his activity is really, um, you know, uh, interfaith and interreligious dialogue and uh, conversations. And I've been very fortunate to be part of that. <clears throat> and also, I uh, had the opportunity to assist, assist him um, in writing that book, which tells his own personal story, the journey of interreligious understanding and communication and dialogue. So, I mean, one thing that I have. Um, noticed um, about, um, you know, because of my exposure to other religious traditions and their teachings is that uh, how, when it comes to the kind of, you know, the the, the essence of <clears throat> ethical teachings, um, how there is an amazing consensus across the major world religious traditions. And that is actually quite striking and in some ways it's surprising because if you look at the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that goes back to 2,000 years, and if you take into account Judaism, we're talking about nearly 3,000 years. Um, and then if you compare that to Buddhism, which has about 2,600, almost 600 years, um, they are geographically, you know, very, very differently located. And in terms of history and in those periods, the communication across these boundaries of geography is almost impossible, but at the same time, when it comes to you know ethical teachings, there is such a striking similarity. And one of the things that <clears throat> has, as a result of this, one thing that I have come to recognize is that where there is such great consensus, it must you know um, indicate some deeper insight into the universality of these truths. And that I think is probably one of the most important um, benefits of an interreligious understanding, comparative religious understanding. What do you do with the things that are unique to a tradition? Lots of people want to equate uh, enlightenment as Buddhists might understand it with salvation as Christians might understand it, and I don't think they're even remotely alike. Personally, what do you, when you see the differences, do you 
doubt that you're dealing with something as deep as uh, that's which, that which is revealed by the commonalities? I think here we need to make a distinction between differences in the language and the differences of the actual, you know, <clears throat> experiences that are being referred to. Sometimes we may have differences at the level of description, but underlying those dis- differences, there might be a kind of a commonality. So, for example, if we think about deeper mystical experiences, if you look at the different traditions' description of this, um, clearly there will be differences because the, the con- conceptual framework within which the, these experiences are understood will be different. And once you have a different conceptual framework, although you may be talking about a fairly similar kind of states of experience, but given the difference in the actual conceptual framework, and these experiences will be described differently. So I do believe that even at the level of mystical experiences, there has got to be some universality. But then there will be, you know, differences in the way in which, for example, what constitutes salvation or liberation, spiritual liberation, and that there might be differences. And so some of these differences probably have to do with language and description, but some of these differences may also point to different experiences of the human mind. So let's go to the new book, A Fearless Heart. It's based on a course that you helped create at Stanford Medical School. So what what was the course and how does that morph into the book? Well, um, actually, the motivation for the book sort of predates that Stanford program that I, I helped develop because compassion has been a very, very prominent feature in my life. First, growing up as a refugee child, I was at the receiving end of many people's compassion. And then furthermore, within the own Tibetan culture, there is, within the Tibetan culture, um, there is a lot of emphasis on compassion and its central place as a key spiritual value. And then having done uh, undergraduate in Western philosophy at Cambridge, I also uh, noticed how in contemporary scientific explanation, the human behavior, underlying motivation for human behavior is very, very, explanation is very dominated by pursuit of self-interest. And there's very little room left for compassion and empathy and sense of connectedness and as being a powerful driving force for human behavior as well. So, So these are kind of larger background, which sort of um, led me to think that maybe down the line, writing a book, pulling these threads together might be helpful. And then the Stanford program that I was able to develop really gave me the opportunity to bring something concrete to the table. Um, And the Stanford program, I was there as a visiting scholar at the Stanford Medical School. And uh, during that tenure, I was able to develop a program. And inspired by the MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, which John Coverson developed at uh, University of Massachusetts, and mindfulness and its applications in the public domain, particularly in the health domain, has received a lot of attention. So I felt that, you know, if mindfulness can lead to these kind of benefits to the larger world. Um, what about compassion? Because compassion uh, cultivation and meditation related to compassion training has a long history in the Buddhist tradition, just as mindfulness. So I took that as an inspiration and developed a program, which then um, you know, received a lot of attention. So in the book, you say that people actually fear compassion. Why is that? 
I think if in our own, particularly in contemporary society, I think people are worried about being taken advantage of, and also because our popular narrative of human our explanation of human behavior has been really about pursuit of self-interest. You know, to be smart is to be able to know what your self-interest is in a particular context, situation, so that you pursue it with you know greater insight. So because of all of this narrative, I mean, we, we mustn't forget that. As a society, we are really brought into this popular story that we are profit maximizers, we are species, you know, you know, our primary drive is the pursuit of self-interest and all of this. So in this kind of culture, I think people do worry about being taken care of um, and taken advantage of. People do worry about being seen as a weak if you show compassion. And uh, actually, the, the, the scientist who thematized the fear of compassion is a British scientist, a psychiatrist by the name of Paul Gilbert. And I drew from his work because it made perfect sense why there is a lot of resistance on the part of people. You know, if compassion is part of our natural instinct, how come we are not living up from that more than we should be? And then, you know, fear is one resistance that we bring to expressing our natural compassionate instinct. I can't think of anything more important at this time, maybe any time, but certainly at this time in, in human history, to be cultivating compassion. The book also includes a lot of practices. We aren't going to have time to go into that, but I encourage readers to buy the book to see that this is not simply philosophy. This is also practice. My guest today, Tupton Jinpa, scholar, monk, father, and real spiritual pioneer. I want to thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. People can learn more about your work at TibetanClassics.org and more about Central Conversations at SpiritualityHealth.com. This week's show is sponsored by the Utopia Foundation, providing the opportunity for people to create solutions that contribute to a more equitable world. Please visit them at utopiafound.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health, and you can go to their website, spiritualityhealth.com, to subscribe to the magazine and to download the podcasts. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy-Smith, and Meredith Tollison. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.